Good morning. We are going to have to really go fast. So you're going to have to listen really, really well this morning. Because it's quarter till and none of you will look at another watch until I'm done and I say amen, right? Alright, so time is irrelevant and um, we're just going to plow through this. Because we're back in Nehemiah and we're in chapter 6. So you need your Bibles open in front of you. If you did not bring your Bible... I will resist calling you a pagan because that would be inappropriate, although you probably are one. So please, that was a joke. Some of you are offended already. Can you please get a Bible in front of you in that pew? Open it up, go to the middle of the Bible and hang a left. Nehemiah chapter 6, we're going to finish out chapter 6 this morning. And I want to start with a quote that probably most of us are familiar with. It occurred, it was spoken October 29th, 1941, from the lips of Winston Churchill, he said, Never give in, never give in, never, 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 in nothing great or small, large or petty, never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force, never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. Now I want you to take that famous saying, never give in. And let's apply it through the text this morning in Nehemiah chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 15 through 19. And what we're going to see this morning is that our God, our Lord, is faithful. He is faithful to do two things. And we're going to explain those. He's faithful to do a lot of things. But in the text this morning, two things in particular. Now I want you to remember in the book of Nehemiah, what we've discovered is that in biblical days, a city without walls was a city of reproach. Listen, if you hailed from a city in the Old Testament that didn't have walls, and somebody asks you where are you from, and you tell them the name and the destination, and they the name of the city, and they know about it, they're going to feel pity for you. They're going to feel reproach on you. You're from there? You lived there? They don't have a wall. That means they're open to attack. From enemies, 360 degrees, any time, any, any opportunity that they wanted to give. It was, a, it was a state of reproach. It was a state of shame. And that's how Nehemiah opens up. Chapter 1, verse 3. Some friends from Jerusalem visited Nehemiah, 800 miles north in Persia. And Nehemiah discovered that the Jews, the people of God, were in great trouble and shame. Why? Here's why. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Walls keep the wrong people out. Gates let the right people in. If they're both broken down, you've got the wrong people overrunning you and you've got the, you've got the right people that aren't able to encourage you. And the Jews had powerful enemies. They were surrounded by them. They had Sanballat to the north. They had Tobiah to the east. They had Geshem to the south and to the west. They had to the west the Ashdodites, which were the Philistines. Ashdod was the greatest city of the Philistines. They were surrounded by enemies. Their wall was down. Their gates were destroyed. They were a city that was in great shame and reproach. But God is in the rebuilding business. Now listen, I want you to remember this. Have you had something calamitous happen to you in 2012? Knocked your walls down in rubble? 
Maybe it was a sin, maybe it was the death of a loved one, maybe it was a divorce, maybe it was a loss of a job. The list can go on and on because there's a lot of things that in the twinkling of an eye can drop your walls to ruin. And God will rebuild them. He's in the rebuilding business. And if you listen to the poem that you're going to see behind me by Maltby Babcock, it says this when he wrote it. He says, be strong. We are not here to play dream to drift. We have, hurt, we have hard work to do and loads to lift. Shun not the struggle. Face it. Tis God's gift. Be strong. Be strong. Why? Because, listen, I'm going to tell you something. Let's pound it into your, in your heart. You've got, you got to know this. If you don't know this, then you're going to get waylaid by the enemy time after time. The enemy will never give up, friends. Never. Our enemies will never yield. They will be strong even in the face of God's overwhelming might. They will work and they will strategize and they will plot. Why? Well, here's what 2 Thessalonians says. Why can we have hope? Look what it says. This is going to be our guidepost this morning. This verse right here. The Lord is faithful. Say it with me. The Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. If you've not memorized that, can I encourage you? What a great way to start out the year. Put that one in your soul and anchor it. You ever seen that one and you remembered it in 2 Thessalonians? The Lord is faithful. He will. Put the emphasis on will. He will establish you. This is a promise. And guard you against the evil one. Because God's in the rebuilding business and we are called to be rebuilders of broken walls and restorers of streets of peace. And we must remember that the Lord is faithful. He will establish us and he will guard us. So let's use that as our template this morning. Listen, have you ever been hiking? When I was in Haiti on a mission trip, we visited a mountain that had a citadel on the top of it from King Christophe when he was a disastrous king of Haiti trying to rebuff the French. We visited this citadel and it was, we had to travel, we had to walk miles and miles through the jungle to get to it. And, and at times it seemed we could see the mountain. It was so big and we could see the citadel from miles away. And it seemed like the path was taking us in the opposite direction. Eventually it meandered back, but we kept our eyes on the mountain, on the goal. Here's our goal this morning. Here's our signpost. He will establish you. He will guard you against the evil one. So let's start with that. Number one, God will establish. Look at Nehemiah with me, chapter 6, verse 15. So let's let the word of God do its job in our hearts this morning. So the wall was finished. Now listen, that ought, you know, we're in, we're in number 22 in this series. For some of you, that's agonizing because you have spiritual ADD. But listen, we're in number 22. We've been talking about the wall. You're, you're likely tired of the wall. And some of us are likely tired of that person. But listen, the walls, the walls have been being built for 52 days. Nehemiah got there three days prior for 55 days. In 22 weeks, we've been talking about this wall of Jerusalem, and now the wall was finished. It ought to send a tremor of excitement through you. 
The wall is done on the 25th day of the month of Elal in 52 days. Now listen, let's get some bearings, okay? The Elal month is our mid-August to our mid-September. So it's after the spring planting and right before the spring harvest. It's a perfect time in God's sovereignty to rebuild this wall because what do you do in the summer? Not a whole lot. You're waiting for the harvest and we're going to get there in a little bit with the Feast of Tabernacles that they're going to celebrate. But there's two main estimations I've told you before that this, of the length of this wall. One, one estimates that it was two and a half miles. That's called the maximalist uh, position two and a half miles around the other one called the minimalist that it's slightly under two miles most think it was the minimalist most think it was just slightly under two miles but i want you to to think two miles think of where your driveway ends and walk two miles think in your mind you know where it is a reference point two miles away from your driveway that's how much wall they built. Excavation has shown us it's nine feet thick in most spots on the east end where they've done a lot of excavation. Nine feet thick, under two miles long. That's a lot of wall. And they did it in 52 days. And some of us would think that physical feat is a miracle. Now listen, I'm going to suggest it's not a miracle. Pastor Tim, you're a heretic. Let me explain. The Roman general in A.D. 70, when the Jews revolted against Rome and Titus, the general, soon to be the emperor, was sent against them. He squashed the rebellion. And part of the way, by the way, Josephus, a historian, says 1,100,000 Jews were killed in that revolt. He squashed the rebellion. And the, one of the ways that he did that was that he built a wall around the greatly expanded Jerusalem. He built that wall in three days. Here's how long that wall is, according to history. 24,000 feet, including 13 war towers, three days. Alexander the Great, he built the walls of Alexandria around that city, eight almost eight miles long. He built it in 20 to 30 days. Listen, Nehemiah's wall was impressive. Because it was done with fewer people, there was constant opposition. It was impressive, but I don't think it constitutes as a miracle. Let me explain it even further. Webster defines a miracle this way. It's divine intervention in human affairs that produces an extraordinary event. And we're used to, aren't we? Aren't we used to biblical stories of healings and angelic visits and they, they tend to color our perspective that God only works, listen, God only works in overt, demonstrable, observable ways. Avoiding what seems, what seemed to be a car accident last night, somebody told me his son a few weeks ago, 4.30 in the morning, working just a bazillion hours a week, overtired, was driving to work at 4.30 in the morning in a Ford Escape, fell asleep, ran straight in and through a phone pole. The phone pole came almost all the way up to the windshield. And this young man did not even get hurt. Now we would say that's a miracle. 
And avoiding what seems to be a car accident, miracles, those, those times when the exact amount in a check arrives in our mailbox that averts a financial crisis, that timely word that gives us hope through a difficult time, that healing when doctors give a bleak prognosis, all, all of these things, they occur and when they do, they bring glory to God. They're overt, they're demonstrable, they're observable. Now friends, listen. It's interesting to note, in the entire book of Nehemiah, there's not one healing. There's not one angelic visit. There's not one recorded miracle. There's no multiplying of bread for those hungry Jews into feeding thousands. There's nothing overt. There's nothing demonstrable. There's nothing seemingly miraculous in the book of Nehemiah. Here's what we see. And I'm going to suggest this is the norm. What we see is like an iceberg. The little bit you see above the water is dwarfed by what is below. And what is interesting to me is that the hand of God was working behind the scenes, below the surface, beneath the eye of casual observance. And you see this, by the way, you see this in the person who surprisingly, and some of you might be able to identify with what I'm going to tell you, surprisingly notices that that sin pattern that they've struggled with for years, it's gone away. I've experienced that. Somebody last night after church came up and said, I can't believe you said that. Just, just a few weeks ago, I realized something that's been dogging me all my life. All of a sudden, I realized, wait a minute, it doesn't bother me anymore. I don't struggle anymore in that area. That person that discovers freedom from addiction or that slow reconciliation of a long rift in a relationship or that marriage that once was on the rocks and now it's thriving or that person who was once hardened against Christianity now serving in the church. Listen, that's below the surface. That is the iceberg hand of God. It is miraculous. It is powerful. It's below what you constantly observe. See, the rebuilding of the wall, what I'm trying to get us to see is this. The rebuilding of this wall in 52 days, listen, it's impressive. But what reveals the hand of God was that despite every single surrounding nation opposing the work, they succeeded. That's the establishing power of our faithful God. Brother and sister, listen, God will establish you. He will build your wall. You can pound that into your soul as an anchor for faith. He will bring you out of the ruin and he will bring you back into streets of peace. God's establishing power was so surprising and it was so noticeable. Look at the text that their enemies, their opposition, perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. When God establishes his people in the strength of their salvation, there's going to be results. Let me give you three of them. It will, first of all, bring awe to those who oppose God. Verse 16, and when all our enemies heard of it, 
All the nations around us were afraid. If you've got the KJV this morning or the NASB, I really like the flow of those translations in this verse because it says the enemies heard about the wall being completed and then they went and investigated and saw that it was completed and then it produced fear in them. The accomplishment of this wall was so great that all the nations were afraid, meaning they were in awe. That's what the word means. So awesome was the persevering, establishing power of God that they saw their utter helplessness in the face of it. Listen, now I want to bring you hope this morning. This is the purpose of this sermon. Are you, let's just be utterly raw, honest struggling with sin that you cannot seem to overcome struggling in your marriage and you really kind of gave up hope that it's ever you're just going to endure it until the day you die are you struggling with depression are you struggling with loneliness Are you struggling with this job that you have that you have no joy in and it seems like you're locked into it with no hope of getting out of it? Listen, when these situations come and they will come against us, what we need to have in our mind for hope is this, that God will establish you. He is faithful. And when he establishes you, not only will those who oppose God Be in awe. Look at number two. It will discourage our enemies. Look at the text. They fell greatly in their own esteem, meaning that their confidence in their own power, their confidence in their own ability to oppose God, it fell, it plummeted, it dissipated greatly. You know what struck me in writing this sermon, probably more than anything else? I want you to hear this because I think most of us have never, ever considered this before in our lives. Do you know that Satan can be discouraged? Did you know that your flesh can lose its confidence? Do you know that this world... This God-opposing, energetic world that seeks to draw us away from God onto paths of deception. Do you know that this world can fear? Have you ever considered that? That Satan can lose confidence when God establishes you in your salvation. His rage is fueled by fire. Little time out, little aside. Did you know that most anger at the root of it is fear? You won't find a better icon to double click and expand the example than Satan. His rage is fueled by fear. And what he fears more than anything is the power of God. And when that power is displayed in this church, and when that power is displayed in your life, establishing you, Satan will lose his confidence. You know, our church, as it becomes more effective in our vision, which is rebuilding a spiritual wall around the east end of the Lehigh Valley, we want to see that wall, the 
the evidence of God's presence and salvation. That's what a wall meant. We want to see this wall get rebuilt from Bangor down to Durham, from Stewartsville out to the east side of Bethlehem. And as that wall begins to be rebuilt, as we partner with other Christ-centered churches and organizations, there will be the awesome display of God's power. But listen, what there's going to also be is the incredible effort of our enemies to dissuade us. He will try to convince us that there is no way we can financially afford what we're trying to do, that no one will come to those services downtown, that the counseling center is going to fail, it's not needed, that Riverside is a waste of time and resources. Listen, all of these and more are going to come against us. You might as well get ready for it, but our God is faithful. He will establish this church and he will establish you in your salvation. And when he does, look at the third one, it will increase the reputation of our God. Look what it says in the text. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. You know what I really like that's not in there? They didn't notice Nehemiah's unbelievable leadership skill. They didn't cite that for the completion of the wall. And they're never going to cite Pastor Tim's preaching ability. That would be me, and when I slip into the third person, we're in trouble. <laughs> and they didn't cite our incredible worship teams or the warmth that you felt when you came into this church from the people. That's not what's going to establish us in our salvation. What they're going to cite is the awesome, faithful power of God. And when they see it, they're going to lose their confidence and God's reputation will be elevated. And as you're working in your jobs, friends, listen, no matter what your career is, very few of you are called to ministry. Most of you, and obviously, or I mean, honestly, I'm going to tell you I'm a little envious because I would love to be out there in secular work. Being able to promote the name of God. I would love to be able to be around unbelievers all the time. I love being around unbelievers. I love them because they are who they are. And you get to display grace. And as you're in your jobs and you're in your neighborhoods and you're in your schools and you're displaying the establishing faithful power of God, you're going to increase his reputation and you're going to cause your enemies to lose their confidence. The world and the flesh and Satan will be afraid as God establishes you in your salvation. Because it's not by might, Zechariah said, it's not by power. It's by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It's my job. It's my work. It's my assignment. It's my power that will establish you. And it's my power that will do the second one, guard you. You know, Spencer Johnson, how many of you have read the book, that little book, Who Moved My Cheese? You guys read that? It's a pretty good little book. It's not a Christian written book. It's got a lot of good principles in it. He asks this question in that book. What would you do if you weren't afraid? We have somebody in our church who is a motivational speaker. And this is a 
excellent motivational question, but I want to change it just a little bit. But even that question, what would you do if you weren't afraid? Would you bike across the country, maybe hike the Appalachian Trail, maybe quit your job and start that home business that you've been wanting to? I mean, what would you do if you were not afraid? But I want to twist it slightly. Let me redeem it just a little bit. What would you do for the Lord if you weren't afraid? Now, let me ask you that. What would you do for the Lord if you weren't afraid? Maybe you would talk to that person about Christ because you grieve for their soul, but you've been afraid of their response. Maybe you would join ministry and get involved in a ministry. Maybe you'd lead a life group. Maybe you would follow the call of God into full-time ministry. What would you do for the Lord if you weren't afraid? See, 2 Thessalonians, our guidepost, it's expressly purposed to free us to serve God in the way that he is telling us to. For the Lord is faithful. The Lord is faithful. He will establish you. That's a promise. And here's promise number two. He will guard you against the evil one. Do you know that fear, I've already told you, is the root of most anger. Do you know that fear is the number one strategy of the devil. See, I don't think a lot of us know this. Do you know that fear is the number one most mentioned human problem in the scriptures? It's over 600 times occurring. Do not fear the Amalekites, for I am your God, I am with you. Do not be dismayed at their force. Listen, fear of man is constantly through scriptures. And it's attempted to be used against Nehemiah, and we're about to see it. Let's look at verse 17. Moreover, in those days. Can we take a pause for a second? Because you read that and you sort of might miss something that's pretty important. Because this isn't sequential. The wall's finished, and then verse 17 begins... No, verse 17 is, is going on while the wall is being built. Moreover, in those days, you could reword it while we were building the wall. And look at, look at what it says. The nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. It's a little lesson that you can really, really lose quickly. Know the point of this lesson? I tell you, we've got to get this. Our enemies, friends, they will never give up. They will not quit. They will dog us every day of our lives on this side of eternity. You will never get a vacation. They will never give you a a reprieve. If they seem not to be working against you, it's only they're recalibrating their schemes. They're waiting for you to drop your guard. So that their next plan, their next strategy can be unfoiled upon you. Our enemies will never quit. They never give up. Listen, listen, I will prove it to you. Open your Bibles forward. Flip forward to chapter 13 with me. Look at verse, look at chapter 13. Look at this fact that these enemies will never give up. Look at verse 8. Who do we see in verse 8 of chapter 13? Listen, this is the end of the book. We see Tobiah. 
who's trying to worm his way into the city of God, into the people of God. Who do we see in verse 23? We see the nations of the world trying to pull the Jews away from their obedience. Who do we see in verse 28? We see Sanballat, who is still trying to desecrate the worship of Yahweh. They're never going to quit. And when you begin to realize this fact, that you cannot lay down your guard... That you cannot take a vacation from spiritual preparedness. Well, you're on your way to being established and guarded. Back in chapter 6, verse 17. For many in Judah were bound by oath to Tobiah. That's amazing. This is, by the way, Tobiah who just a chapter or two before said, even if a fox were to step up on your wall, it would collapse. He was ridiculing and mocking the Jews, and yet many in Judah were bound by oath to him. Do you remember Tobiah? Let let me take you a bit deeper dive into him for a minute. He's called in chapter 2 the Ammonite servant. That's the Ammonite slave, meaning that he was a slave servant or vassal to send ballots. He was subservient to Sanballat. Sanballat's the ringleader. Let me give you a little bit of a refresher course. Sanballat in the book of Nehemiah stands in the representation of our ringleader enemy today, Satan. He's the most powerful of all their enemies. And you've got Geshem, the Arab, who was a commercial, commercially wealthy ruler of the south and west. He controlled all the trade routes, all the promises of money. We're under the power of Geshem, who represents the world and that God-opposing power that we deal with. And then you've got Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, who represents and stands in the place of our flesh, that part of us that wars against God. Who were the Ammonites? Do you remember the Ammonites? The Ammonites in Deuteronomy 23, the Bible commands, they were not allowed to enter the assembly of the Lord. They could not come into the congregation and the worship of the Lord. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. God is slapping the flesh by the face, across the face with a glove saying, listen, we are in perpetual conflict till the days of your life are over. They were illegitimate cousins. You remember the nephew of Abraham, Lot, and Lot, when they came out of Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot had only his two daughters left for him, and his daughters got pregnant by their father. They got him drunk, a very illegitimate tale. And then the youngest of the daughter had a baby, and from that baby came Ammon, and from Ammon came the line of Ammonites, who were illegitimate cousins of the Jews. They spoke almost the same language of Hebrew. They settled in the land right next to them. They were entrenched. They could never get them out. They were part and parcel of their social life. It's the flesh. And Tobiah represents the old nature, the old man, the flesh, which each of us has, the enemy that's warring within us. Martin Luther said this, the affections and the desires that run contrary to God in every area of life, that's the flesh. 
Romans 8 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The flesh battles against the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God battles against our flesh. And listen, as you walk with God, by diminishing degree, the flesh will lose its power. I like what Susanna Wesley, the mother of John and Charles, the theologians and hymn writers, she said this, whatever weakens your reasoning, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God or takes away your relish for spiritual things. In short, if anything, increases the authority and the power of the flesh over the spirit, that to you becomes sin, however good it is in itself. Wow, that was a wise woman. So we've got Tobiah, who is the entrenched enemy, who of the three was able to get inside the walls of Jerusalem, just like he's able to get inside the hearts of Christian brothers and sisters, all of us in this sanctuary. And verse 18 says, Many in Judah were bound by oath to him. Isn't that alarming? Listen, who was Judah, the tribe of of Judah, the lion of Judah was their standard. Listen, Jude, you got to get this. Judah was the tribe through which the Messianic promises were fulfilled. Listen, why was the enemy attacking Judah? Because they were trying to obliterate the bloodline so the Messiah could never come. The flesh is pulling out all the stops, trying to get the tribe of Judah to fall into sin, to apostate against God, to set, to dilute their bloodline. And by the way, Christian brother and sister, the enemy is doing the same fierce work in every Christian. Listen, we bear the name of Christ. Christian means little Christ. We bear the name of Christ upon us. And the way that we live, the way that we speak, the way that we work, the way that we work at school, all of that does one thing or another to the name of Christ. It either elevates it or it diminishes it. When you cut corners at work and you cheat on your income taxes, you are bringing the name of Christ down and the flesh is gaining victory. And when you refuse to do that, when you give your best at work every day and you get there on time because you know it's important and you leave there only when the job is done, you're bringing the name of Christ up and you're bringing reputation and fame to God. It's why this is one of the Ten Commandments. The line, the line of Judah was being attacked fiercely by Tobiah. And he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, according to verse 18. This is one of the priests. Tobiah, this illegitimate cousin, this Ammonite, married to the daughter of a priest in Jerusalem. And he has a son, Tobiah. He has a son, Jehohanan, who who's taken the daughter of Mishalem. Don't you remember Mishalem? He did two parts of the wall in chapter 3. This guy's a builder. He's an energetic worker for God. Yet he allows his child to marry an illegitimate Ammonite. Listen, this is the foothold, Christian brother and sister. They want to get a foothold and bind you by an oath. They want you marrying unbelievers. I don't know anybody that's ever married an unbeliever that's not ended in misery. 
It's one of the most common things I deal with in counseling. Listen, if you violate the principles of God, you're going to reap difficulty. We have somebody in our church that yoked in a business partnership with unbelievers, and now it's in lawsuit. Listen, if you violate the principles of God and you bind yourself and yoke yourself to an unbeliever, you will reap difficulty. It's the law of God's promise. And this is what they're doing, by the way, Jehohanan, in the New Testament, it's shortened into the name John. And they spoke, look what the Jews were doing in verse 19, they spoke of Tobiah's good deeds in my presence, and they reported my words to him. We've got all of these these nobles, these wealthy aristocrats in in. Jerusalem, these Judah nobles, and they're speaking well of Tobiah. By the way, it was Tobiah who, with Sanballat, hired false prophets to try to kill and discredit Nehemiah. And when we yoke ourselves to the flesh, this is what it means. When you bind yourself to the flesh, our thinking will become distorted. What was wrong will become right. What you never thought you would do before now becomes more than okay. It becomes good. Do not remember that from the Garden of Eden. Let me take you back chapter 3. It's the same strategy that Satan used with Eve. All of a sudden, he gets into her mind, he gets, begins to twist her thinking so that she saw the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was be, to, to be desirable to make one wise. Listen, the mind is the battlefield of the enemy. Do you know that? Listen, above all else, guard the heart, for from it flow the issues of life, Proverbs 4. You know what that means? The heart to the Jew was made of three things. Your mind, your feelings, and your will. Listen, the enemy's not going after our will, and the enemy doesn't really care about our emotions. They follow the locomotive as the caboose. What they're going after is your mind. To get you to think that it'll never change to get you to think you'll never defeat this sin, to get you to believe that God is really not good and he's holding out on you. This is what the enemy does as he begins to battle and wage war on the battlefield of the mind. And God brings truth through his word. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewal of your mind. Then you'll see God's good will as perfect and acceptable. It's why we were warned, set the mind on the flesh, then it's death. But to set the mind on the spirit, it's life and it's peace. Our weapon is the mind-renewing power of the word of God. Listen, if you did not, January 1st, commit yourself in a greater way to getting into the word of God and letting the word of God get into you, then I think you're missing your greatest weapon. You've sheathed it and it is ineffective and powerless. There's, I'm going to be as plain as I can be. Christian brother and sister, listen. You literally have no hope of overcoming the enemy if you will not study and meditate and live by the word of God. You have no hope. I cannot offer you anything. None. It's why the word of God was given to us. It is our powerful weapon 
to renew our minds, straighten out wrong thinking so that we want to do right living and we joyfully worship the right God. It's the battlefield. You know, I haven't even told you, and I'm almost done with the sermon, I haven't even told you yet in this series what the name Tobiah means. It's startling. It means Yahweh is good. How's that for the flesh? That comes to us under the pretenses of good, who masquerades as something that we need in order to be happy. You know that hook that gets baited by Satan with something in the world? This is how they work. Satan baits the hook with something in the world so that it can pull the desires of our flesh to it. And the battle is in the mind that that's not real, that if I take that baited hook, it will bring me short-term happiness, which will end in misery. The truth is God's got a better joy, God's got a better way, and I could take that. Tobiah means Yahweh is good. His son Jehohanan means Yahweh is favorable. Yahweh is merciful. See, Tobiah looked good, and many in Judah, the tribe that was set apart, many of them were deceived. And this is deliberate. The more you are in a position, listen, the more you're in a position to influence the kingdom of God, the more the flesh will come after you. So let me end maybe a little abruptly, a little shock, not shocking, but just quickly. Look at verse 19. Look at the end of it with me. And Tobias sent letters to what? Make me afraid. Fear is the number one strategy of our enemy. And if you were no longer living in fear, what would you do for God? Look at chapter 6, verse 9, just a few verses previous. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking if we can get them filled with fear, their hands will drop from the work, and it will not be done. This is what they're trying to do. They're trying to keep you from building that wall of your salvation, to keep you from being secure in who you are in Christ. They're trying to prevent that wall from being erected and finished. And the way that they do it is by bringing messages of fear into your life. But Nehemiah lived on his knees and his mind was cleared by the word of God. And here's what he knew. And here's what's been our guidepost. Let's look at it one more time. The Lord is faithful. He will establish you. He will guard you against the evil one. Do you believe that? Now listen, look at me as I close. I want everybody looking at me if you can. This is so important. Friends, do you really honestly believe that? Don't be too quick to nod your head yes. Because I don't know anything more prevalent in the hearts of Christians than fear and doubt of God's goodness. The Lord is faithful. Can you claim that? Can you claim that by faith? He is never not faithful. He is always faithful. Even when your kids have walked away from God, He is faithful. Even when you cannot find a job in this economy, God 
is faithful. Even when your marriage, it's hard to even wake up and walk through it another day. God is faithful. Even when you get that prognosis from the doctor with the word cancer, God is faithful. And look what he promises. Out of his faithfulness, he will establish you. He will make your salvation secure and you will be strong in Christ. And he will guard you from your enemy, the world, Satan, and your flesh. That's a promise. Let's live out that promise. Amen. Amen. Lord, thank you for Nehemiah. Thank you for what we're learning. Thank you for what I've been taught so much from your word this week. Lord, let us live in a way that can discourage our enemies, that can cause them to lose their confidence. Let us walk with you, and as you establish us, and as you build our walls, our spiritual walls up, Lord, as you make your name famous, as you guard us from the evil one, Lord, you will diminish their strength and their confidence, and your name will be made great. Lord, let us live that way at at work and let us live this way at home and in our neighborhoods and in our schools. Lord, pound these things into our hearts. Let them be anchors when our enemy comes against us. You are faithful. You will establish us and you will guard us from the evil one. Thank you in the supreme and awesome name of Jesus Christ. Amen.